So, Jim, do you feel like saying I told you so at this moment? Uh, like a wee bit, maybe. Just just a little bit. Back in September, Slate's Jim Newell wrote this article. It was called, uh, maybe Democrats should start paying attention to the Virginia governor's race. It's not like I'm the only one who thought that, but not enough people thought that, and I was very surprised why. Jim was not just looking at the poll numbers when he wrote this, although even back then, polling was looking pretty good for the Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin. Jim was looking at the history. History is kind of the architecture here. A new party takes over, and typically, in all but one Virginia governor's election, the last 12 of them, the other party has then won the Virginia governor's race. You know, that's not just like a a magical coincidence either. There are certain structural factors that keep making that happen. But here's the thing. A couple of years ago, MSNBC's Steve Kornacki was standing in front of a big board and declaring Virginia a blue state because the Democrats had taken over every lever of state power. And that's why a lot of people are asking, what just happened this week? Jim says it's always possible Republicans wanted it more. Democrats have won the last two governor's races and Virginia Republicans with each loss get more and more eager to turn out and, and, you know, win back control of the state that they haven't had in a long time. I love the way you put this. You were like, every morning they wake up irritated and they were ready to go. I actually understate it there. It's not just the governor's races. They've lost every statewide election in the last decade. You know, I mean, this used to be a really safe bedrock Republican state on the federal level. It started just electing Democrats almost overnight regularly, but that didn't mean it was ever safe and that the conditions weren't couldn't ever be right for a Republican to come back. You know, I was watching some CNN coverage of the Virginia race, and a political reporter sort of got in Glenn Youngkin's face. She asked if his campaign showed a way forward for his party. And he sort of brushed her off. And he said, you know, I just, I thought we could run a different kind of campaign. Is that what he did? No. (laughs) Like, I was watching a speech, too. He's like, this wasn't a campaign. This was a movement. And it's like, what do you, you won an election by two points. Okay, buddy? Today on the show, cutting through the hype around Virginia's governor's race and what's been a pretty bad week for Democrats. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Jim Newell says the first thing you need to know about this Virginia governor's race is that Glenn Youngkin besting Democrat Terry McAuliffe, it was something of a political hat trick. He successfully straddled this this difficult task that a lot of people didn't think he could pull off, where he's kind of 
winking at the the Trump supporters in the base, you know, who he had to really get the support of just to get through the primary. But he was able to do that without necessarily turning off enough of the suburban voters uh, who he needed to flip. Hmm. The headline on your article after what happened in Virginia this week was Terry McAuliffe lost because he was a Democrat. And I want you to kind of prove your point here. Like, why do you point to his Democratness instead of, I don't know, the fact that he himself may have been kind of a bland candidate? Well, I think you have to look at what's going on in New Jersey, which is being kind of, I didn't think it was be a race. I checked in on people that who know these things and who I trust, and they said it's not going to be a race. And, you know, here we are the morning after the New Jersey governor's race waiting to see who won. Whether Phil Murphy, who was supposed to win by eight or ten points, is actually going to win. And someone pointed out that the Democratic head of the state Senate was replaced by someone who I think spent like a couple hundred bucks on their campaign. It's really weird. Yeah, I mean, it's just there are a bunch of local races I haven't even looked at yet. But I know there was, you know, Democrats lost a lot of ground in Long Island elections last night. I mean, it was just it's across the board. If you look at the Virginia map specifically, it's not, you know, the New York Times has that map which shows the shift relative to the 2020 election. And it's pretty uniform in Youngkin's direction, no matter what part of the state you're in from last year. And that's just a sign of a really bad environment. I mean, Joe Biden's approval rating is 42% right now or something and not going back up at the moment. So it's just in that environment, like it's really hard to win anything that's competitive if you're a Democrat. Why? Why if you're a Democrat? Because you have this anger around you from Washington where the president's unpopular, people are pissed off about inflation and everything, and they just want to vote out the incumbent. Democrats have been in charge of Virginia for... 10 years or whatever, Democrats are in charge in Washington right now. If things are not going well, who's going to face that backlash? And actually, the more I look at what's how badly things are going in, in New Jersey relative to expectations, the, the more it kind of firms up my belief that this wasn't specifically a Terry McAuliffe problem. I mean, Terry McAuliffe, I'm not saying he is the greatest politician in history, and he made his share of mistakes, but... This is something where if he had run in 2017 when Ralph Northam won the Virginia governor's race, I mean, McAuliffe would have won that comfortably. Hmm. I feel like people, you know, kind of look at these situations like, you know, oh, did McAuliffe, did he put too much emphasis on that issue? Like, was his ad strategy? Did he put his money in the wrong place here? It's just atmosphere. There's a bad atmosphere for Democrats. They're not popular and they're going to get cream next year if they don't do something about this. Was the problem in all these races that Biden voters jumped ship and voted Republican or Biden voters just didn't show up? Actually, turnout overall was pretty good in the state. I think it actually broke the record. So you could see actually the Democratic turnout, maybe it was up a little bit, but Republican turnout was up through the roof. So that's why, you know, when we talk about turnout differentials, it's not like Republican turnout up, Democratic turnout down. It's just both up, but Republicans by more. And that's kind of the difference. There also was, I think, five to 10 percent, you know, of Biden voters who then voted for Youngkin, which doesn't seem like a ton. But, you know, that can be kind of the whole ball game here when we're talking about these differences. If, if you're talking about a four or five point shift across the state, that's all you need. Yeah. 
Dave Weigel said something that I thought really clearly laid out this difference. He basically tweeted that on Monday, if you'd told a Democrat that Terry McAuliffe would win 1.6 million votes, they would have said, great, that means he won the race. Right. But he won that many votes and he lost the race, even though he got more votes than any Democratic candidate for governor in that state had ever gotten before. Yeah, this played out a lot in governor's races and off-year races in Trump cycles where just because there was such high, you know, Trump kind of brought out a lot of people, but you could see Republicans breaking their own records in races where nevertheless they just got swamped by Democratic candidates who went through the roof on their own records. These are such narrow differences when you look at everything, but, you know, if you don't keep up with a point here or point two there relative to what the opposing party is doing, you know, You'll, you could lose across the board. The last time a Republican won Virginia's gubernatorial election while a Democrat was in the White House was back in 2009. Barack Obama had won the state by six points just a year before. But Republican Bob McDonnell beat his Democratic opponent by 17 points when the governor's race came around. In hindsight, this loss was a very bad omen for what Democrats would suffer in the midterm elections. But Jim says even if Terry McAuliffe had eked out a win this year, Democrats would still have a problem. Say McAuliffe had won by one versus losing by, I guess he's going to lose by about two now. You know, even if McAuliffe had won by one, he's still nine points behind Biden's pace set in 2020. Because Biden won the state by 10 points. Yeah. And that's a pace where Democrats won, what, 221, 222 seats in the House of Representatives. So... You know, obviously, Democrats would have seized the opportunity, you know, if they could lock in a a McAuliffe plus one win there. But it it wouldn't mean that they would be in great shape heading into next year. Like, they'd still be, like, in a hole relative to, to what they just had. When we get back, how other Republicans might crib from Youngkin's playbook. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I know you don't want to say, you know, Youngkin is the future of the Republican Party because we just 
we don't know yet. But I think a lot of people are looking to this campaign to help them read tea leaves about what other candidates are going to do, at least. So I want to look at two elements of his campaign in particular. And I want to start by looking at schools, because in the last weeks of the gubernatorial race, you could really see Youngkin focusing on this issue of schools and parental control in schools. And a lot of folks said, if this works, we're going to see a lot more of this. Can you tell the story of how Youngkin seized on education as an issue for him? This was an idea that was discussed between Youngkin, Virginia Republicans, National Republicans, of trying to do something with the anguish and discomfort a lot of parents have been feeling about their school system since the pandemic began as a way to win back some of the suburban voters that they had lost so heavily during Trump. You say it was a conversation between all of these people. Do you mean that literally, like, strategy conversation where they're like, okay, listen, we have this anger here. We can use it. Yes. You can look at earlier this year when Biden was being inaugurated and Democrats were starting and they were working on a coronavirus relief plan that Republicans didn't really know how to go after, you know. Republicans in Washington, Republicans in Virginia, they started talking about school closures and how we have to get schools reopened. And there was a real heavy emphasis on this. Science is not the obstacle. Federal money is not the obstacle. The obstacle is a lack of willpower. Just among the rich, powerful unions that donate huge sums to Democrats and get a stranglehold over education. And then schools reopened. So you then see Republicans start talking about the curriculums on schools and maybe some things that parents had noticed when they were, you know, homeschooling their parents, essentially, during the pandemic that they thought was questionable. And so you get this brew that came up with this critical race theory attack. It was kind of like a merging of two things Republicans had been testing, which is anger about kids not being in schools. And then once they got back, like whether they had to wear masks and all that sort of stuff. And then anger about race and how we talk about it. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it worked in a way that people could kind of hear what they wanted to hear when they heard the word schools, but the reaction would just be negative for the, for the voters, you know, Youngkin was trying to reach. Like, you know, in, in more conservative Republican base areas of the state, you know, it could be this total critical race theory is taking over the curriculum, teaching white people to, to hate themselves and, um, you know, indoctrinate your kid to, you know, think that white people are the problem. And it could be that kind of more hysterical version uh, that, that you would see on Fox News or something. And we will absolutely remove, rid the political agenda that it's made its way into our classroom by banning critical race theory on day one. But then if you go to Northern Virginia and you just hear schools, it could just be kind of a, a you know, the curriculum. There are debates over that, certainly in, in places like Loudoun County. But I think also it just kind of hit a certain frustration with the way that public school systems have been handling the pandemic and, you know, also just this even more deep-seated frustration with just the pandemic isn't over. We're still having to, you know, mask up wherever we are in public, including in schools, and go through, you know, all these these rituals that are that are diminishing the normal education that kids are supposed to be getting and they're sick of it. 
And so you're just going to take that out on the party in power. I think that's such a good point that it, the idea of schools, it had this useful vagueness to it. Yeah. And so you can campaign on the idea of schools and choice and control of your kids' education. And when you talk about it one place, it means one thing. And when you talk about it somewhere else, it means something different. But you can almost use the same words the whole time. Yeah. And then McAuliffe's biggest mistake of the campaign was in the debate where he says the line, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Yeah, I stop the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Let's, you know, McAuliffe was being asked to defend a decision he made when he was last in office more than five years ago. Back then, a parent objected to her high school son reading Toni Morrison's Beloved because of its graphic depictions of the horrors of slavery. She took her complaint all the way up to the state legislature, convincing them to pass a law that would let kids like hers opt out of lessons when their parents found them offensive. As governor at the time, McAuliffe vetoed this bill. And that's the context where this came up. And McAuliffe was saying, you know, we can't just have parents going into the library and picking out every book that they don't want their kids to read. But the way he phrased that, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. I mean, parents, I'm told, are pissed off about the way schooling has been handled over the last pandemic. And just when you have something saying parents can't tell schools what to do, that just hits a really uh, sore spot and a nerve for a lot of parents. And and you really saw McCall's advantages in education kind of collapse after that. Yeah. I mean, I spoke to a local reporter who pointed out that McAuliffe launched his campaign at an elementary school. Like, education was typically a winning issue for Democrats, and McAuliffe certainly thought it would be one for him. Yeah, and this is something where you you could get a lot of frustration from the, the Democrats working on this race, where Youngkin is kind of doing this superficial attack on schooling and, you know, how, how Democrats want to indoctrinate you to be woke and all that stuff. But it's masking some of Youngkin's views that are traditionally not popular among a broader population, like about expanding charter schools and taking money away from public education and all these things, which, you know, perennially put Republicans on the losing side of the education issue. There's another question that I think is on a lot of people's minds post-Virginia gubernatorial election, which is what does Youngkin's win say about Trump? Because Youngkin did this funny two-step with Trump where he in the primary, you know, kind of played with Trumpism and talked about election fraud. And then in the general election, he kind of leaped over and and refused to engage with the former president directly, even though Trump kept trying to endorse him. He wanted to affix himself to Glenn Youngkin. I saw one Republican strategist who looked at the results and said that they make it clear Trump is a loser for Republicans. And I sort of wondered why he would say that and whether you think it's that clear. Well, I, I in a state like Virginia, yeah. I mean, he would have been. Why? Why do you say that? Because he's still unpopular by 20 points or whatever in, in Virginia. I mean, look at how both campaigns treated the question of Trump in this election. McAuliffe tried to make everything about Trump and try to make Youngkin a mini version of Trump. You know, it didn't quite work. 
And young can meanwhile, whenever Trump would come up, would say, this is not about Trump. This is about the issues. This is about Virginia. As much as he can get away with it without pissing off Trump too much, you know, or pissing off Trump's voters too much. Virginia is a light blue state. So if Youngkin really wanted to do well here, he could not have Trump in the news, you know, front and center the way that McAuliffe wanted him to be. Do you think that's the message Republicans are going to take from this that, you know, back slowly away? (laughs) Well, I mean, they can't just quite back away. Like to win a primary, you still have to be very pro-Trump. I mean, look at the primary in Ohio right now between Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance and some others now. It's a total Trump lookalike contest that's, that's really gone overboard. So, I mean, that's how you, you know, they can't just turn their backs on him entirely because then Trump might endorse someone else in a primary and then you wouldn't even get your preferred candidate to the general election. I think all Republicans would love to run campaigns this year where they didn't even have to think about the issue of Trump. But the Trump base and Donald Trump himself won't allow them to do that. What is your number one recommendation to maybe Democrats in Congress right now? Who are, to people who are looking at this election and thinking, this is a bad omen for us. Mm-hmm. Like, what's their next move? I think it's they need to pass these two bills in front of them and they need to make sure that as much popular stuff as possible is is thrown in there. You know, the Build Back Better Act, a lot of its provisions are all still pretty popular. The bipartisan infrastructure bill is still, you know, really popular stuff. So I don't think you're going to see moderates kind of getting wobbly and thinking that what they were doing legislatively was the problem. I think their takeaway is going to be the problem was we we haven't gotten any of this done yet. Hmm. So the problem isn't the legislation, it's the legislators. Yeah, so far, I mean, it, like, this is one thing I said in my piece, you know, people are getting after McAuliffe for focusing too much on Trump and not talking about Democratic accomplishments and everything. Like, what Democratic accomplishments? They haven't passed anything in 10 months. You know, he really could have used both these bills as something he could point to about how, you know, how much Democrats are achieving if, if they had been, you know, done a month or so ago and been able to diffuse the atmosphere a little bit. Jim Newell, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Jim Newell covers politics for Slate. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, Daniel Hewitt, and Davis Land. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hi. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Catch you back in this feed on Monday. <laughs> 